Welcome to the podcast. I'm Bruce Moe of Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm here with my colleague, Jack Sullivan. Welcome, Jack. Thank you, Bruce. We're talking today about the federal government's long-running investigation of corruption at the probation department, which ended recently with a federal appeals court closing the case with no convictions. Three officials at the probation department were convicted in 2014 of charges related to running a rigged hiring scheme at the agency that was designed to curry for, for curry favor with state legislators, including House Speaker Robert DeLeo. Those convictions were overturned on appeal, and the court recently declined to grant a further appeal, putting the case to rest. It was a case that for a time captivated the city in Beacon Hill and brought to light the influence lawmakers wield at some state agencies. It also raised questions about whether federal prosecutors overstepped in trying to turn patronage into a crime. With us today is William Fick, an attorney at Fick and Marks, who represented Jack O'Brien, the former probation commissioner, throughout the case. Welcome, Mr. Fick. Thank you. Give us your assessment of what the outcome of this case means for, for all of us following this. Uh, well, I hope it's a lesson to federal prosecuting authorities that they cannot be the arbiters of good government in every uh, aspect of uh, the Commonwealth, number one. And number two, it's a lesson that the criminal process, criminal law, is an extremely blunt instrument to try and uh, affect policy change. And when it's uh, deployed, uh, it can often have devastating and really uh, unfair impacts on uh, people who uh, ultimately committed no crime, as was the, as was the case here. So, but it is, it is true that in each of these appeals court decisions, the, the judges sort of said what happened here is we may not like it. But, it's, but their conclusion was it was not a crime. Is that your take, too, or do you feel like it was? Well, uh, whatever one thinks of uh, so-called patronage in uh, hiring in state government, uh, you know, I, I think what happened at the trial or the picture that got painted at the trial was a, an exaggerated or distorted one. I mean, that's not to say that, that hiring in, federal, in state agencies couldn't be, uh, couldn't be better, couldn't be fairer, couldn't be more transparent. But uh, when, it, when an appeals court looks at a conviction, they're required to look at the facts sort of in the light most favorable to the verdict. And so uh, the appeals court is sort of just acknowledging their, their legal obligation to say, okay, we're going to take as a given that the picture the government tried to paint is accurate, but we're still going to say legally no crime was committed here. You know, if you step back further, I think uh, what, uh, you know, what we saw at the trial was in some ways an exaggeration and, and really the entire case was uh, a situation where um, a political struggle between the judiciary, the probation department, and the executive branch, uh, that political struggle um, was in a way distorted when the U.S. attorney became weaponized by one of the sides in that struggle uh, to, to take out one of the other sides. You know, uh, the, the way hiring was done in the probation department was not new and it was not unique. One of the things that came out at the trial, for example, on the cross-examination of the former Chief Justice of Administration and, Man and Management, Robert Mulligan, was that hiring in the trial court itself was done exactly the same way, and almost it was almost worse, right? You had, you had situations where court officers, the hiring of which was controlled by the trial court, um, that was even more political, and there were really no qualifications required for those jobs. You know, the, 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 the father of a staff member 
of a prominent legislator was hired to be a court officer essentially with no qualifications whatsoever. And, you know, Judge Mulligan really had nothing to say about that. But, you know, the, the, for whatever reason, federal authorities didn't decide to prosecute that. And so what you had in the probation trial was the selective deployment of federal law enforcement to uh, take sides in, in a political fight within state government. And, and when that, that happens, that's a very dangerous thing. One of, one of the things, Counselor, that when we're talking about the case here, um, it all started with uh, the Globe series on uh, probation hiring. Uh, and the day after the first day of the Globe series, uh, Chief Justice Mulligan came out with his uh, edict and, and he suspended uh, Mr. O'Brien as well as his two, um, uh, who turned out to be his co-defendants. Um, when, when you talk, for instance, about um, the hiring of the court officers, that was not part of the Globe series. It was all focused on, on probation. So how much do you think public pressure and, and um, the, the, the uh, imprint of the Globe had on, on an impact on this? Well, I think the globe was sort of the first step in in, in the weaponization of the political struggle. Um, uh, you know, the 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 globe series was focused on probation. The investigation uh, by uh, Ware was focused on on probation, and uh, then the federal prosecution was focused on probation. And so, really, this was all series. In, in, these were all sort of a series in that process of weaponizing outside institutions for a political struggle within state government. And when you say weaponizing, I mean, that, that's definitely a charged term. I, it well, you know, uh, and look, I'm not, I, I think there is certainly value to investigative journalism, uh, but sometimes I think um, any kind of investigator, whether, whether it be a journalist or law enforcement, sometimes there's a certain tunnel vision, uh, a certain lack of perspective on a bigger picture, and when an investigation, whether it's by journalists or law enforcement, is being goaded, uh, um, set up, um, set in motion by outside forces, there's a risk that uh, it can be uh, deployed in a way that's sort of unfair, has a disparate impact on, on, on one particular target. So just to be clear, the outside forces, it's the struggle between the chief administrator of the trial court or the trial court and the probation department? Right. There, there, over, over the years, the, the question of who had authority to hire probation officers, uh, that had changed. Originally, that authority all lay within judges in local courts. And again, there was testimony during the O'Brien trial to suggest that that process back in the day was also extremely political. Judges then, individual judges, were getting calls from legislators and recommendations for individual hires. Um, at a certain point, the hiring authority was shifted from individual judges to the commissioner of probation. The idea there was that you could have a more unified administration, a more professionalized uh, um, uh, probation service that wasn't necessarily subject to, uh, you know, uh, political choices, to, to, be, to, be, to be frank about it, of individual judges and individual courts throughout the Commonwealth. Um, and so uh, that change occurred, uh, and the judiciary wasn't necessarily happy with that. And so there was sort of this struggle for influence, power, uh, over hiring between the judiciary and, and probation. And... Um, the uh, the Globe story and the prosecution were were a uh, one outcome of that. You, when I understand that that this was overturned on appeal, 
Um, but when we talk about it, you're talking about you know the the uh, rush to judgment, the weaponizing of um, of the prosecution of the investigation. Um, it, it was a jury that found your client as well as uh, Elizabeth Tavares and uh, Mr. Burke guilty. Um, what what does that say about the, the jury system then? Well, it says that, um, well, first of all, it says that, of course, uh, it's not surprising that a jury that the public maybe don't, uh, the, the inner workings of government, be it state government or federal government or, or whatever part of government you're talking about, they aren't necessarily pretty. And uh, the federal criminal laws are extremely broad and vague. And so when you try uh, to use criminal process using extraordinarily broad and vague statutes, to uh, clamp down on um, a, a, a state or local government practice that may see, that people may not like, um, it's not surprising that it's it's attractive to sort of say, oh, well, we can use the criminal law to solve this problem, and and it's it's not surprising that the charges were brought and that the jury came back the way they did. Um, you know, there were issues with the jury instructions, there were issues with the application of the law, and that's ultimately what uh, you know caused the, the convictions to be overturned. You know, but let's step back here for a minute. We were not talking here about what we tr traditionally think of as public corruption. Nobody put money in their own pocket to, 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 to exercise their authority in a particular way as a, as a state official. The, the gist of the, 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 um, the allegations here was simply that um, there was a kind of uh, um, mutual goodwill uh, trade going back and forth between state agencies and the legislature. That's that's politics. It's not typical. It's not corruption in the sense of anyone putting putting money in their pocket. It's just different institutions of state power interacting with each other and and trying to, uh, you know, trying to do what they have to do to get their work done and get the resources they need to do it. Do you, Mr. Burke retired uh, on his own, but but both uh, Elizabeth Tavares and uh, your client Jack O'Brien were forced out of their jobs. Um, and actually, for a time, lost their pension or are on the verge of losing their pensions. Now that this is complete, will they go for any recourse? Will they try to get their jobs back? Or I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to comment on that, and I, I'm, I'm not sure that anyone really um, knows exactly what, what will transpire on, on that front at this point. How are they doing? How's your client doing? I'll just say this was an incredible ordeal over the course of many years. Uh, that really caused a lot of damage to somebody who was a, a public servant for his whole life. I mean, he dedicated his life to the probation service. He started as a line probation officer, worked his way up to be the commissioner of the department, uh, you know, by all accounts was very effective at doing his job, was very effective at getting the resources he and those working for them uh, him needed to do his job. And you know, as thanks for that, uh, he uh, he was prosecuted and vilified for years, and that's that's something that really nobody should have to face. Do you um, when when you talk about how um, you know nobody said that 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 government is pretty or that the process is is pretty, and but it just shouldn't be weaponized. Except for the racketeering aspect of it and the criminality uh, aspect of it. All of the things that prosecutors say that they did, that they uh, set up the um, hiring system the way that they did, that they chose the finalists, that they, um, you know, they, they predetermined um, who some of the uh, hires would be. Did your clients do that and it just wasn't a crime? Well, 
again, I think I said this before, the, the presentation at trial that the government made about the way hiring worked was an exaggeration. It's certainly true that legislators made recommendations. Those recommendations were taken into account in, in, in the way people were hired. You can argue about whether they had too much weight. Um, but again, through this process, um, a lot of very good probation officers were also vilified. People who were, had eminently, who were eminently qualified for their jobs uh, and you know they, they sort of got put on a pillory for the, at the at the trial also, and were sort of treated as if as if you know they were completely undeserving or, or 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 some kind of hacks. And you know for the most part, again, we're talking about people who work in state employment for modest pay, doing important public safety work, and uh, you know they really don't deserve to be treated in that way. I was curious about the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, it always seems a bit like a black box, how they choose what to, what to prosecute and what not to prosecute, particularly when it comes to political issues. Um, is it, what's your sense? Is, is it the, in this case, the prosecution was brought by US, under U.S. Attorney Carmen Ortiz. Does it make a big difference who the U.S. Attorney is in terms of how aggressive they are in going after these things? Or... Is it just a function of the staff doing whatever they do? Or what, after all this, what, what's your sense? Well, uh, I guess there's no set answer to that question. Um, certainly career staff within the U.S. Attorney's Office have a lot of influence about what cases are investigated and what cases are brought. Um, the, the management, uh, the, the supervisory staff, and then the U.S. Attorney herself or himself um, also can have a big role in setting an agenda, in deciding whether or not ultimately to pursue a prosecution that might be more sensitive or less sensitive. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I guess the answer is it, it's a mix. Career prosecutors, um, uh, you know, run a lot of the day-to-day -day operations and make a lot of the day-to-day -day decisions, but the boss is going to be ultimately making a call about what the office's priorities are and whether at the end of the day a particular case is going to be pursued or not. What does the outcome of this case say about Carmen Ortiz? You know, it's hard to sort of make a, a snap judgment about uh, the tenure of a United States attorney from one case. Uh, I, you know, obviously, I think that this case was ill-advised and should not have been brought. Um, so, you know, I, I wish uh, that Carmen Ortiz had uh, had made that determination before the train left the station. I, you could pretty much say that, I, I would imagine, about any case that ends up either in an acquittal or, or gets overturned. That's something that should not be brought. But you were talking earlier that, you know, it's, it's not always up to the U.S. Attorney's Office to be the arbiter of good government. But can't you say that this case, regardless of what the end result was, did have an impact on the way business is done up on Beacon Hill? Well, I, I suppose. I mean, it, perhaps, you know, it, it made everybody a little bit uh, more cautious and it, it scared a lot of people. Uh, you know, is that a good thing? Is, is that the right way to achieve reform? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more ambivalent about that. Um, I will say during the course of the investigation and prosecution of the case, it kind of turned the state house upside down, right? Uh, people had to, had to retain lawyers and they were getting subpoenaed to the grand jury and documents were being requested. It really had a very, I think, negative impact on the day-to-day -day operation of state government simply because this giant, uh, you know, uh, this giant investigation was hanging, hanging over the place. Um, and so, 
you know, look, everyone wants their government to be more transparent. Everyone wants hiring to be more transparent. But I think, you know, the, the way you start with that is at the state and local level. Um, if you don't want there to be patronage, there should be a law, a state law saying exactly what is and isn't permitted. Uh, it, it really is not appropriate, not fair to the individuals who wind up in the crosshairs if, you know, after years of business being conducted in a certain way, suddenly a federal prosecutor decides to apply a broad and vague federal law to go after a couple of particular targets who are really simply operating within the institutions as those institutions have already operated, have, have always operated. House Speaker Robert DeLeo came up a lot in this trial. Um, he wasn't even, uh, wasn't even thought that he would be a, a major factor at the beginning of the trial, as I recall. But then suddenly, um, I don't know, halfway through, two-thirds of the way through, his name came up and it became a very prominent, at least from a reporter's standpoint, it became a prominent part of the case. What's your, I, I'm interested in your assessment of, uh, the, the speaker was very upset that he was dragged in but not ch and never charged with anything. Almost as if that's even worse. He can't even clear his name in court. What was your, what was your take on that? Well, I think it's not it's it's unfortunate, but not surprising that as the sort of you know head of the head of the state house, so to speak. Well, I mean, you know, as the speaker of, of the house, he he would have a big target on his back. The prosecutors would be interested in tying things back to him. Um, you know, he, he's a natural target in that regard. And uh, but just as I think the prosecution generally was ill advised, I think it's unfortunate that you know he suffered the consequences of that. What, I think a lot of people don't understand, it, and even sometimes for us as reporters, it's hard to get our arms around it. What does it mean when a prosecutor names somebody an unindicted co-conspirator? What, um, what is that message that's being sent, and what does it mean for the person that's labeled that? Well, I, essentially what the prosecutor is saying is that this person was part of the conspiracy. That is, they were part of the, the alleged crime here, but for whatever reason, we decided not to charge them. Um, it's a kind of weird, uh, it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird status. It's just, um, uh, that, that, but that, that's what it means. Um, but I mean, certainly it's, a, it, 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 you know, in the court of public opinion, it's a pejorative, you know, oh, oh, my, oh my goodness, somebody's labeled an unindicted co-conspirator. But in the big scheme of things, for instance, with, with Speaker DeLeo, what did it mean? How did that impact it to have him as an unindicted well, co-conspirator? I mean, I, well, I, I think, you know, it impacted him because yes, it's, it's a pejorative publicly. I'm sure it was uh, very unpleasant to be tagged with that label. In, in terms of the trial, there are certain uh, consequences under the rules of evidence and the, the hearsay rules to uh, what happens if somebody is an unindicted co-conspirator. Are their statements made outside the courtroom admissible despite the hearsay rules? I mean, I'm getting very deep in the weeds on that. You know, that's why, um, however, unindicted co-conspirators are, are sort of named officially and given that label. It's because it has specific consequences in terms of the rules of criminal procedure and the rules of evidence. Do you think that that had an impact on the jury to hear something like that? You know, I mean, it's it's hard to speculate exactly what 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 had an impact on the jury, but um, um, obviously the prosecution um, liked being able to label um, uh, important and influential people with pejorative labels as part of their overall presentation. So, getting a little bit to the weeds, as you put it, um, I was curious. 
in some of these appeals court decisions, the, the objection, again, is my reading of it, was that the court was saying, um, now these might be might be state crimes and, and left to, to prosecute at that level, but they do not reach the level of a federal crime. And it was sort of like the U.S. Attorney's Office was trying to stretch a, a, what you say maybe a vague statute over to cover a state crime. Could you, as a lawyer, could you sum that up, what what, what the court was holding there? Well, so the Court of Appeals actually um, uh, overturned the convictions on, you know, pretty well-established and and basic principles. Um, on the bribery gratuity aspect of the case, there's a long-standing um, uh, principle of, of, of law that says, you know, you can't just, you can't charge a bribery or, or gratuity simply on an exchange of goodwill. If like, you know, I do something nice for you and the expectation you're going to do something nice for me, that's not a bribery or gratuity. And in the in the in the in the case of sort of uh, of of political officials of elected officials, you have to have a very specific tie between a particular benefit that's given and a particular official action that's taken. That was absent in this case. The court of appeals uh, said essentially what you had, all you had, was um, an allegation or some evidence to suggest that uh, the probation department. Uh, gave a lot of deference to legislative recommendations, um, and that was part of their effort to generate goodwill and make sure that their budgets were, were treated fairly. Um, not enough of a specific tie to constitute a crime of bribery or crime of gratuity. Uh, on the mail fraud aspect, and, and you know, the mail fraud is essentially a, a, a way that federal law uh, is used to reach various kinds of frauds, uh, the, the reason it becomes a federal offense is because the mail, use of the mail is involved. That's a jurisdictional requirement to bring a mail fraud case. What the Court of Appeals said here is that the mailings that the government alleged, which were rejection letters sent to unsuccessful candidates for patient jobs, uh, the, the court said, you know, that's really not uh, central enough to the alleged crime here to, to trigger federal jurisdiction. And so they, they uh, overturned the mail fraud convictions on that basis. And those are two very, very well-established uh, principles of law. You know, the exact application in, in any given case is always a question, of course, the courts have to look at. But they didn't really break a lot of new ground there. They really just sort of said, you know, the courts have said over and over again, these are what the rules are. We're applying those rules in this case, and this case is a bridge too far. Um, the Court of Appeals didn't get to uh, some of uh, the sort of more interesting issues, uh, which maybe some future case will present, which is, you know, can you ever really bring a corruption case? Is it ever appropriate to bring a criminal corruption case where, um, you know, whether it's for bribery or, or, or what have you, where, um, you know, no one is being personally enriched in the process? You know, what you had here essentially were uh, political entities, state institutions, um, working together or trying to work together, right? The legislature controls the money, but the probation department needs to do its work. They need people to do that, so they need resources to do that. And there's a certain amount of give and take between institutions of state government, whatever they are. And the notion that you can police that with federal criminal law to say that, you know, a, 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 a political bargain is somehow criminal um, is, is potentially really, really troubling because then it's very hard to figure out where to draw the line. And it allows unelected prosecutors to really make uh, very, very uh, 
you know, to, to, to make choices that have devastating impact on people and institutions without any guidance, right? I mean, where, where do you draw the line? If one legislator says, vote for my bill and I'll vote for your bill, is that a crime? You know, it, it's an exchange of influence, um, but that's, that's the way politics get done. gets done. We may not like it. It may not be pretty. It may not be the most efficient way to, uh, to, to, to run a railroad or a government uh, in, in some abstract sense, but, you know, that's, that's the reality of how people get along, right? We, we exchange, uh, we, we make bargains, we make exchanges, we make compromises. And, uh, you know, as long as nobody is lining their pocket in the process or lining the pockets of some third party in the process, which is the most traditional form of corruption, um, it gets really, really dangerous to use the criminal law to try and police other kinds of political interaction. And this case was a was was a, a great example of what happens when prosecutors go too far. And last question is: Is this case a, a sort of warning shot, but from the appeals court to the U.S. Attorney's Office? Do you think it's going to um, send them in a new direction from now on? Or you know, I, I'm not sure if it's a warning shot or sending them in a new direction because, again, I really think what the appeals court did here was not terribly surprising. Was not um, you know was not some groundbreaking new decision. They used two very well-established and long-established principles that, you know, a bribe or gratuity has to be a specific exchange, not just goodwill. And if you're going to bring a mail fraud case, the mailing has to be, you know, a, a pretty important part of the alleged fraud. And they just said, this case didn't meet that. And, and, and you know, perhaps in some sense, um, Maybe federal prosecutors sometimes lose sight of 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 the you know those boundaries, and and so maybe this is a reminder in that regard. But again, it didn't really break any new ground. Mr. Fick, thank you very much for joining us, Jack. You too. Thanks. Um, and that's it for this week's edition of the podcast. Join us always on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks. Thank you for having me.